Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to hear from Matt Goldberg, a postdoctoral associate at Yale University. Matt works in Yale's program on climate change communication as a researcher of psychological, political, and cultural influences on attitudes towards climate change. Just this week, an article of his was published called Discussing Global Warming Leads to Greater Acceptance of Climate Science. Pretty much, Matt and his colleagues are trying to figure out how to talk about climate change most effectively. So without further ado, back to Yale we go. Okay. I think we're good here. Okay, so maybe to start off, if you could just uh, tell us who you are, where we are, uh, why we're here. Cool, (laughs) yeah. Uh, So I'm Matt Goldberg. I'm a postdoctoral associate here at Yale. Um, So we're part of the Forestry and Environmental Studies, the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Um, My background is not at all in that stuff. It's it's funny because uh, a lot of people think that I'm a climate scientist because I'm in this building. Um, but my, I'm a social psychologist, uh, so I got into psychology for a number of reasons, but my research interests were along the attitudes and persuasion stuff. Uh, and it's, it's funny because it, it got, I got interested in it through uh, like my troubles in grad school. Like I got some terrible feedback and my papers were horrible, and then like I experienced this threat, and then I really wanted to study like how people get around like defending their beliefs even in the face of like tough, you know, really good evidence. Uh, so that brought me here. Uh, so I've been here 10 months. And uh, yeah, so I'm now I'm at the intersection of this really important issue and my field of social psychology. So I still keep my attitudes and persuasion roots. Um, but now I'm like fully in the applied game rather than just the basic science. I'm interested in the theory, but also like how is this going to be used by the media? Is this going to move people and so on? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about um, if you if you had a doctoral thesis, what that yeah. was about? Yeah. So my dissertation was uh, it was called "Perceived Knowledge and Defensive Political Attitudes." Basically, it was on how much people think they know and how that predicts how they defend their political attitudes. So basically, I would do tons of uh, surveys where people would give their strong views on something, and then they'd always get an argument that goes against them, and then I would see how they deal with it. Um, Because I'm interested in, like, the mental acrobatics of, like, keeping your view even when tons of evidence contradicts it. Uh, So I did it with gun control, uh, you know, the death penalty and carbon taxes, whatever uh, people have strong views on. Uh, So one of the cool insights I found in that was that people like to, people's method of defending their beliefs changes depending on how good your argument is. So like if you give me a weak argument that like I have a ready answer for, I could just refute it. Um, Whereas I found that when you give someone a really hard argument, they use other methods. So I'm trying to create like a hierarchy of like, I'll counter argue if it's weak, and then if it's strong, I'll like go do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, So the something else is still, pretty open. What I found, so the other option I gave people was one to ignore and like go do something else. Uh, So people liked that way more when uh, they got hard arguments. 
And the other one was uh, what I'm calling untestability or unfalsifiability, where people argue it's more about opinions and like my moral position, not the facts. Mm -hmm. So people love facts when they're correct. But then when they find out that the facts are against them, then like we don't need to talk about facts. It's more about opinions. Mm -hmm. um, so people took that route when it was hard, but then they wanted to argue when it was easy. So I found that to be interesting because it's like a hierarchy of defense. It's like if this doesn't work, then I do that. And if that doesn't work, I do something else. Right. Yeah, that is really interesting. It's all, all unconscious too. Yeah, and yeah, people don't like to admit that they're threatened. <laughs> do you observe this in yourself now that you've been researching it? Yeah, it's, it's super meta. It's <laughs> like I'm watching myself commit the same issues that I'm either criticizing or studying. Uh, yeah, it's really tough, and I and I hope to get towards like methods of keeping myself honest. So like, how do I focus on objective ways of evaluating my performance or? Uh, how I'm treating others and so on and it's really tough because we're really good at thinking we're right uh, but yeah it's, it's been it's they call it me search when you know it's like you're too involved in your research but it's I think it makes it super fun and interesting yeah and your research now is it specifically related to climate change or is it still pretty open yeah um, so majority climate change. so I'm taking these concepts and applying them to the issue of persuading people either to get more involved in the issue for people that already believe it's happening and so on, but for people who don't believe it's happening, trying to convince them. And I'm finding that it's not all about convincing them in the, in the plain sense of like telling them something that contradicts their beliefs and then they're moved by it. Uh, so I've been taking, so I'm still studying some of these phenomena, like how do people defend their beliefs and social norms and stuff like that. And I have work going, I have some projects building in those areas, but I'm still applying it most of the time now to uh, environmental issues. Okay. So if you were to meet someone who is already in, engaged or at least educated, believes that climate change is happening, yeah, what are, could you name some of the biggest barriers? Yeah, uh, some of them... I fear are difficult to overcome, whether they're like structural or just like a figment of the human brain. But um, so largely one that people, even people that believe it's happening in human cause and it's a big deal, are not convinced it's happening now or happening here. Uh, so that's a, that's a big issue because why do something that's happening way over there, even just like in another state or in another country. Uh, so that's that's a big barrier in terms of like just getting people to know the risk of what's happening right where they are. Um, so there are some others, uh, a lot of social factors, so that's more my area of research. So if I'm surrounded by people who don't care about it, then um, there's no reason for me to act. But that's also a, a, a good opportunity as well because tons of we have a lot of evidence showing that even people who privately care about it are not talking about it with their friends and family. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just like, get people talking. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, people, uh, people who listen to our podcast, uh, like, talk to me later, and they're like, but what can I do? And I'm like, no, like, you just need to listen and talk. Like, that's, that's the whole yeah. thing. Is that, what do you say, like, this, uh, sometimes I say, the single most important thing we can do is be talking about climate change. And that feels kind of weird to me, because, you know, in our culture, we like we like doing things. Mm -hmm. and it feels weird, it's like to solve something. We all we need to do is talk about. It doesn't sound right. But would would you agree to that? 
Yeah, for sure. I've actually just finished a draft of a paper on discussion. So there's some logistics that are difficult uh, in studying discussion because it's hard to manipulate in an experiment. You can't say like, all right, you guys go talk about it with your family. You guys don't. You could. You could spend tens of thousands of dollars getting hundreds of, or thousands of people to do that. Um, but we took a more of a longitudinal approach. So we measure time one and time two over the course of eight months. This was when um, it's actually the Francis effect. So it's part of that data um, where people are talking about it in between the time points and we look to see if time one discussion predicts knowledge and engagement in time two. Um, so in some cases it does. Um, there, are, there are a lot of factors that get in the way of us concluding that that's causal, but um, I'm getting increasingly confident that we should tell people, like, go discuss it. Of course, we don't know the ways in which they should discuss it. I think, like, not threatening, appeal to their values, there are all those other nuances that that would be tough to convey to people that want to go like make a difference. Um, but yeah, I, I, on the whole though, I think discussion is good, particularly when it's in a non-political context. Mm -hmm. So your background isn't in climate change, but um, I'm curious to know if there are any particular experiences you've had where you have breached the conversation, started a conversation on climate change, um, and you found that someone just was totally unwilling to engage or, yeah. Yeah, um, the, so I've, I've gotten a little bit more credibility in my family, so they're not as resistant as, as they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some, I've had some resistance with like the human cause factor or the we should do something about it factor. Um, I've been, I guess I've, I'm blessed that there are people that are listening to me in my social circle, but I do see in like casual conversations where there's a resistance to particularly the human cause factor because it implies that you need to, to do something or that you're wrong or that you've been doing bad things. And that's, a, that's like right at the heart of defensiveness where it's like, I don't want to be wrong uh, or have to eat fewer hamburgers or stuff like that. Would, yeah. You know, if you told me to eat less pizza, like that, that's going to hurt, you know? So, um, yeah, there are a lot of good reasons for people to want to resist. Um, but I think that just like, we we often expect it to go worse than it actually does when you're just when you're genuine about it when you're like yelling from political uh polls then it's it's really tough but it, when you when it's very casual like hey people treat the environment very terribly and it's like oh like anyone would agree that that's a bad thing mm -hmm. and then just starting from that like non-threatening point mm -hmm. yeah it's been interesting we've had conversations with huge variety of people and our sample size is not that big but um even people we would have expected to be really defensive toward the idea of climate change well there were definitely some defensive responses but with time there was an opportunity to find a connecting point and we found that uh yeah even someone who has like really deep roots in the coal industry is willing to like talk about the implications of moving away from that and climate change and that's been totally. exciting for us yeah. I'm, uh, one thing I'm curious about and that I think about a lot, uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience in this, in this world and I, I'm not, I haven't researched a lot, but it seems to me like climate change in the way that it has been avoided is kind of unprecedented. So maybe compared to the ozone layer issue, which was something that was tackled and everyone agreed was important and then uh, was more or less solved in uh, a few decades. 
Um, I'm wondering if you have stumbled across any other sociological or social psychological uh, dilemmas that have kind of been this like ongoing denial or refusal of complicity like we see with climate change. Yeah, it's tough. I don't know. Well, yeah, because it's, it's hard to pinpoint the cause of what's what the barriers because like now there's a huge amount of money being thrown into uh, just denial uh, so there's just like massive misinformation campaigns so it's like I can't blame some people for believing what they believe because if you watch certain media outlets like all you're seeing is uh, people denying it mm-hmm. but so, some parallels are to the gun issue where there's just like a real there are fewer people like part of this like main court where it's their number one issue but they're very mobile and like ready to act at any time so that's like stopped any major gun legislation that i've seen uh so it's analogous in that way um but i haven't seen the moneyed interest as big and pervasive as oil and gas and uh so i'm working on some uh some some data now where we pulled the oil and gas campaign contributions to Congress and we're matching it up with how they're voting. And um, it's amazing. I, I think it was, I think uh, oil and gas industry donated like 27 million to Congress in total in 2018, the midterms. So that is, that's just massive. Like it's hard, particularly because the person who raises the most money is most likely to win like a huge percentage of the time. And then they just get their people in Congress and it's really, yeah, just gridlock at that point. Are there other things that you've been surprised by in your? Well, I guess you've been here for nine months. Uh, ten. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one thing is how diverse uh, opinions are within the political polls. Like, so there are Democrats that aren't that don't really care about the issue and the conservatives that really do. So I've been really more on the conservative side with like, cause there's more of a need there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the conservatives are pretty much split. Like usually you think like, Oh, left believes this, right believes that. Um, and then when you dig into it, it's like, Oh wow. Like half of conservatives are like, no, believe it's happening or like on board with the issues or supporting some major legislation and um, so that surprised me because I thought it was really just I didn't think about it this simply but it was just like oh like it's kind of dichotomous like most people on the left believe it most people on the right don't and it's not true there are a lot of people on the right that care deeply about it it's just that we're rarely hearing about them Uh, their voices are not as loud and when they do speak up they often get slapped down by by elites so it's, that's what's making it tough because we often conflate elite opinion with public opinion. So when you look at elites, it's like Republicans are united with being anti-climate um, and, and for the most part. But there is like there are some people that are really engaged on the right. And that, that was surprising to me. So now we're trying to mobilize them and get them more involved through norms and through, uh, you know, other persuasion campaigns. And um, I think it will be effective, but we'll see. Do you have any idea, like, if the number of um, number of people in government in general has increased, like, that care about climate change has increased over the last few years? Um, so the people on the left, yes, but I think I'm pretty sure the right has gone the opposite direction in the past decade. Um, so if you go back to like 
2010 or even there might even be yeah so like there are videos of like george bush uh george bush senior saying climate change is a big deal you do something about this uh you know george w bush uh, mitt romney there's video of him in i think early to late 2000s where he's like we need to act on this we need to do this so that tells me that they know what's going on but they're just going with the flow of what's keeping them popular or in office or whatever mm-hmm. um so sucks to say that a lot of a lot of uh lawmakers on the right have gone the opposite direction um but i think as soon as it's politically advantageous to go the other way then they'll probably move i have a question backing up just a bit you mentioned the misinformation so um we're hearing a lot about the climate deniers and a lot from the climate deniers as well and um but i'm wondering if there's if you've also stumbled across areas where um, those who do believe in climate change are um, being misinformed as well, but I'll give you a little bit of context um, and specificity. So there was one point a couple months ago where I was like, you know, I've operated for a number of years believing that even, like, even if we convince people that climate change is happening, that we don't actually know what to do to solve the problem and I think I'm wrong about that like I think we have the answers we have the solutions and if we can get the support um, financially and socially behind it that it's at least feasible maybe I don't know but I'm wondering if you've ever encountered a different type of misinformation being spread to the public like this is way too daunting to actually do anything about yeah i think that that's a mix of people that are genuinely feeling that way like i wish we could solve it but like it doesn't seem like we can versus people that are using it as like a next line of defense but i think there is a good amount of people that are like totally accepting of the science and uh some of the solutions but like don't have hope that uh that we could actually execute it Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're looking at a lot of stuff um, the effects of hope and versus fear and as uh, so we have ongoing studies on that now and uh, hope is pretty is a pretty big deal because you want to believe that we could do something about it um, I guess that that waxes and wanes because like when you see that you know they're just batting down any kind of legislation it's like ah well, we're not going to be able to do anything about it um, so you have the doubting our ability to solve it and versus our doubting our willingness to solve it. And I think sometimes that's that's hard to distinguish. Mm-hmm. I have another question about belief defense. Um, I think something we've learned this year and just going and interviewing people from all over the spectrum is that I think we had this perception that uh, people on the dismissive side of the spectrum were ignorant about climate change or didn't feel, or maybe yet weren't well informed at all, but um, after an interview with them, we don't really get that. That's not really like the reason. They, they have other good reasons that they believe that climate change isn't real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, that's kind of a, that's a humanizing thing because it's like, oh, they're not like just idiots. Like they have their, they have their set of reasons they, that they've thought through this and they, they feel like they're right. I guess my question isn't really related to that, but that's context. Um, is there something that, uh, in your research on belief defense, helps 
bring people's defenses down to the point where they are willing to engage. So you talked about this like hierarchy of like methodology in your brain. Like what what do I say now? Is there is there something that as someone approaching the conversation, you can say to, to like uh, shortchange those barriers. Yeah. Um, like Catherine Hayhoe's thing is uh, solution based conversation. I think that's what she yeah. would say. I'm wondering what. what yeah, what it's funny you mentioned Catherine Hayhoe because I was just going to mention her because she had a couple, I don't know whether it was uh, talks or speeches or something, um, but she had a couple good techniques where it's right in line with what the literature says where you want to affirm and then try and persuade. So like, what about your worldview can we either come to an agreement on or can I totally affirm? And one way that I saw she did it very effectively for the human cause portion, which is like, some people say like, it's just naturally occurring and it's not human cause. And that you'd be right that the climate does change naturally. Like here are a bunch of examples and she's well, super well versed on when in Earth's history, there have been major changes in climate. So it's like, you're right, like it, it is, like these things are very uncertain uh, and it does change naturally. But in this case, when we consider those natural changes, what's left over is our activity, you know? So it's like you start with the agreement and then you follow it up with something. Um, I like it even more when you affirm a value or a worldview. Um, so I guess it's, it's kind of hard with climate change, but if you want to affirm their approach to the world or if they're conservative, maybe you start with like a free market kind of solution. Like, so we're working on some uh, using good messengers or like take example of Pope Francis where it's like, if I already accept you as a good source, we already have that and that's my entryway to what comes after. Because I think my initial fault in my methods of belief defense thinking is that there's some information you could give that will get through but I think it's way more social than that so mm -hmm. if it's coming from a family member or a respected religious leader and like you follow them and they're a credible source then that's just like the doorway for at least the message to to resonate deeply mm -hmm. so would you say that Yale Climate Connections and the um, YPCC thank you are they focused at targeting a specific group of people? The, is the middle more open to change, would you say? Um, it's hard to say. Well, for us, we've got so much going on that it's hard for me to even keep okay. up with. Because uh, we're just, we're expanding and doing a lot of awesome stuff. Uh, we're trying to get people that are gettable, you know, that's a, for lack of a better term. So like the dismissives largely are not, they're just, they're, their attitudes are highly solidified and they're often surrounded by people that believe the same. So it's really tough. Um, basically anyone else's fair play. I mean, we would love to convince them as well, but if they don't have strong prior beliefs, then that's, they're pretty malleable. So the disengaged are right in the middle. They like, don't even, you know, when you ask them like, have you heard about climate change? Like I haven't heard about it in months or whatever. So really not engaged in the issue. But the thing is, they're less likely to vote. They're less likely to be receptive to an appeal. So that's kind of tough. Um, then you have like the doubtful that are slightly to the right on the scale. I think we have it over. Yeah, yeah. I was oh, just yeah. thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. A little cheat sheet. Um, but yeah, so you have the doubtful. So it's like, it's, they're, I think they're in the movable range, but harder. 
Um, so you have the, we need to convince the people on the right side of the six Americas, and on the left side you have the, how do we activate them? So like, uh, the cautious will largely believe it's happening, but, and l l probably largely human cause, but it's like, it's not happening now, or it's like not happening here, and you have the activation part. Uh, so we have different missions for different audiences, which is why I love the Six Americas as a tool, because you do, you're not trying to convince everyone. A lot of, a lot of the alarms are like, what, am, what can I do? Like, how do I go? Do I go protest now? Like, they're ready to go. Um, and so how do we make that easier for them or more motivating uh, versus like if we look at the doubtful or the cautious that are like right on the, towards the middle, it's like we want to nudge them towards like, no, this is happening now or like it's, it's affecting more things than you think. Mm -hmm. uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, uh, family and church as kind of like the two places where uh, if people hear things from those places, they might be le uh, less questioning of, of them. Uh, would you say, are, are, are there other places where people kind of have more trust, uh, other institutions, or, or would you say those are the, the, two, the two strongest by far? Yeah. It's, well, I guess what's the underlying factor in both those things? You have uh, like closeness and uh, moral values. Uh, so there's a bunch of work showing that like people are more willing to act on moral opinions rather than factual or cognitive ones. Uh, that was that drew me towards uh, like taking a religious approach to this, is because when you have a well, one in terms of the methods of belief defense framework. You don't need facts to argue a moral point. Like if I say um, the death penalty doesn't deter crime, like that's a factual claim. If I say it's wrong or like it's philosophically not okay, um, I don't need facts like because it's just a moral position and it could be very compelling. Uh, so to say like we're like ruining the earth, like that's not okay. Um, that could resonate with more. It's also easier to remember, easier to talk about than like we are damaging the soil in this way it's like ah i'm already gone you know in terms of being engaged even if it's a really compelling issue uh so i don't know that there are more uh i guess you could apply these like closeness and morality to a bunch of different areas like um like if you're interested in a particular sport or like we're looking at like fishermen we're looking at um people that are interested in birds and it's like if you're passionate about something, you could use that to get people engaged. Where it's like we did, there's a YCC story on like climate change affecting hops and your beer, and it's like, oh, people who love beer, that might be really. I shared that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we did. There's one on like it could make your dog sick, and I'm like, oh, dog lovers, like, let's 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 That's go like for it. Yeah. So. I think there are some compelling ways to, to get your way in, particularly when it's like far away from a polarizing political landscape. Yeah. Is that worrisome that the, the primary way to talk about climate change is not non-factual? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. And that's, that's just, it's a struggle of mine because I, so like I, I've been hearing appeals for more information and in many cases that that would be great but we just have limited time uh, time and attention spans and even someone like 
I'm trying to be a, the best scholar I could be, and I see how difficult it is to parse everything that's going on, even in my area. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine if you're, you just have other concerns, you have children, you have you know, rent to pay and all that. So all those things are competing for your attention. So low cognitive load is key. Uh, so uh, our colleagues say, I, I might be butchering this, it's like short, simple messages repeated often by a number of credible sources. So it's really just like to the point, to the point, to the point from a lot of different people, a lot of credible people. And um, it's, it's kind of hard because you want them to be versed in the fact that you want to know like why you're, all your driving is bad or whatever, or you know, wasting a lot of water or resources. Um, but I think doing it in a very low cognitive effort way is key because then it could just it could spread by word of mouth, it could be shared on social media. The like my slideshow is not going to get shared. You know, like so that's it's a challenge. Yeah, I have I have one question though. I you were talking a little bit about the values, uh, the difference in values between the left, political left, and the political right. I don't know if you could speak a little bit more to that, like. If you were talking to a conservative, um, what values would you appeal to? Yeah. Uh, so I have a, a paper that just got accepted where we're talking exactly about uh, using close relationships to get conservatives more involved. Um, so, so liberals and conservatives, there's a ton of work showing that they have different moral foundations, they call it, um, but basically just like different values um, in where they place moral importance. So one being that the right uh, cares a lot about loyalty, uh, particularly in-group loyalty. It's not just anyone I know. It's like you're part of my family, you're part of my group. So using that should be more effective on the right. And we see that a lot where like in the primary, we're, we're about to be in primary season in a year or pretty soon, and then the left tears itself apart. And then the right, they'll, they'll fight, but then they unite behind their person. Um, we see that a lot. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of evidence for people, for conservatives caring way more about in-group loyalty. Um, so in the paper we talk about how harnessing those in-group identities to use social influence is going to be really effective for conservatives in particular. We show that it matters for everyone, but to a larger degree in conservatives. Um, so, and I've been testing it on friends and family, even if they're like slightly skeptical, skeptical or not engaged in the issue, it's more like, hey, like it, this is our problem kind of thing, and you could, you could use your collective identity to get people more involved, and I think, I think that's going to be important among conservatives. Um, one challenge is that, like, let's say a, a conservative elite is like, climate change is a really big deal, they could just get batted down as being against the group. But if enough of a, like if as soon as a majority emerges, like the rest should fall mm-hmm. because then you don't want to be left out of the group. But there needs to be some uh, norms that conservatives should care. This is a conservative issue. This is, it's not even a political issue. It's just something we should all unite behind. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Great questions, thank you.